0: Good morning, good morning. Oh, it's good to see you this morning and we're glad you're happy resurrection Sunday to you and we are glad that you are here excited you're here to worship and so we want to share the word with you for a few moments turn to the book of John chapter 20 for a few moments John chapter 20 as we talk about the resurrection which is absolutely what we should be talking about today together in our time of teaching and, and so I, I had this thought this week as you find John chapter 20 for a moment I had this thought, what if there was no resurrection? I don't know if you've ever had that thought or not, but what if there was no resurrection? And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, Mark, I'm wondering about that. And if you are simply mulling over that and that's rolling around in your brain this morning, then we're glad that you're here because this is exactly where you should be. But what if something wasn't what it was? What if it was? So I, I kind of begin to think about some things that what if something wasn't what it was? And and so I said, so what if there was no sun? You know, this morning we we woke to a beautiful sunrise and it's sun shining outside. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. And it's not liquid falling from heaven, sunshine, but it's actually real sunshine this morning, and that's a good thing. And so, but what if there was no sun? Well, then the world would be in a world of hurt, would it not? Because the sun's gravitational power, it keeps our earth in orbit, is what it does. So, in other words, no sun, no earth, that we would be in serious trouble. Absolutely. If we didn't have water on our planet, then there would be no life because water is our life is directly dependent upon water. No air, no us. So, I thought about, well, let's get to some really important things. And so, I thought about this no pigs, no bacon. That's important, isn't that right? Yes. Yes. For all of you bacon connoisseurs out there, absolutely. It is. When you say the word bacon, you can smell it in your nostrils and it's not even around you. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Yes. So since this morning, I thought about breakfast. No pigs, no bacon. I thought about this. No grit, no grits, right? Isn't that right? Because grits come from the grit and whatever that is, I don't know, but I really know where it's from. So no grit, no grits. And then I thought, well, no no chicken, no egg, but also brings up the point, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? That's something for you to figure out. One of those kind of quandaries of life, yes. But yet, kind of tracking with me this morning, if there's no resurrection, just suppose that for a moment. Well, it's what Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 12 is exactly what he deals with. I want to read this text to you because it makes us think about the resurrection for a moment and what if we didn't have the resurrection to celebrate today. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our Preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. Think about this is all a huge, massive waste of time apart from that of the resurrection. He goes on to say... We are even found to be misrepresenting God, that everything that we do today really is a lie if there's no resurrection, because we testified about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, that we are faithless and that leaves us absolutely hopeless. Apart from the resurrection, he goes on to say more Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ. Those Christians who are dead awaiting the second resurrection have perished. All we have is this life. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so I think there's a powerful thought. If we don't have uh, the resurrection then we're in trouble, is exactly what he's saying, paraphrasing. So if there's no resurrection, all we have is this life to depend upon, then what he's saying to us is this, eat, drink, and be merry, because this is it, and we'll die tomorrow. That's all that we have. There's nothing beyond that. So when you leave, if you're worried about one donut, don't worry about it. Go get a couple more before you leave, okay? If there's no resurrection, because you really don't have to worry about all of that, that all of our preaching is worthless, he says, that all of our faith is absolutely meaningless. That everything is an embarrassment that we're doing this morning. That I'm a fool for dedicating my life and Reba is a fool for dedicating our life to all of this. That this is just a really, really bad joke. Is what he's saying. And some of you are thinking, Mark, if there's really no resurrection you've already received the offering. Can we get a refund from this, you know? Can we get a refund if this is all a really bad joke? The answer to that is no. But that's the least of your worries, right? (laughs) That's the least of your worries, yes. Because I thought if the resurrection is true, then it's all true. If Christ has been raised from the dead then we have every reason in the universe to have hope. And we have every reason in the universe to know that God can come into our lives and make change into our lives, and we are forgiven this morning. But if the resurrection is not true, then none of this is true. None of it. The music, oh, it was good within itself, absolutely. It it was very professional, and, and I think it's very enjoyable. But apart from the resurrection, oh, it was just music this morning. That apart from the resurrection, that Matthew actually got up here in front of you and he lied to you. He actually told a lie to you when he read those scriptures to you this morning apart from the resurrection. And so the thing is, if we don't have the resurrection, then it's kind of peace out because it's all over. It's all over. The Apostle John in writing, John chapter twenty realizes how important it is for you and I to have some kind of working understanding of the resurrection because it is basically the bedrock of our faith. And so the way that he gives you and I John chapter 20 this morning is that he gives it to us in a way that... There is structure and there is form to it so that we have a greater command of what the, resur- what the resurrection is and how it impacts our life. But not this, we just have this head knowledge of what happened on that day and those subsequent days after. But yet that we experience this resurrection with that of Christ and that of the disciples in reading through this. And then it changes our heart and it changes our lives. In fact, John chapter 20 is a literary form we call a chiastic. It is the way that he put this together in this structure, in this form, for you and I to really understand it. To John chapter 20, there is movement and there is rhythm to the narrative that is there, it's a journey. He places it in the book and writes it in such a fashion that it is a journey for you and I to follow through. So at the end of that journey, we have a greater command and an understanding of what the resurrection really means to us. And I think that's powerful. It goes back to then of what simply Paul said in first Corinthians about if there was no resurrection, then we are hopeless. And what John simply says to us is this. You have to understand this because the resurrection means everything is what he's saying. It means everything. If you don't know what a chiastic is, oh, it's a literary form of communication. It, it is an amazing, it's, it's a form of communication with rhythm. It is a lot of music is written t- in that form. A lot of the Psalms that we find in scripture are written in that of a chiastic form. It is a lot of stage productions, that of La Miz and others, they're chiastic forms. And what it is, is this, and I'll just explain it to you, and then it'll make sense as we work our way through this journey this morning. But it's a literary form where you simply if you have points A, B, and C, then it starts with A, B, and C. C, and then it begins with C, B, and it comes back to A. So that it's bookend by these amazing points that change our life, and they're very, very important. And it's the way that John puts this together because he says, hey, you need to have a very good command and understanding of simply what the resurrection means to you. So this is the journey today. That's what these signs up here are for, to help us navigate the journey of the resurrection this morning together. So we have five things to talk about that work our way through John chapter 20 in, in a few moments. And the first is this, each beginning with the journey. So here is the first thought this morning. The journey does not always come with the details. And this is the way it starts with the That of the The details. And that's where some of you struggle, because I have to know all the details, right? I have to know that when you and I go on a physical journey in this life, oh, what do we have? We have maps, we have ways, we have all of these other apps on our phones that get us to where we're going to go. If you have ways, I love ways. I love that. Because why? Because it even tells you where all the police are down the road. Not that any of you would ever speed. You know, I'm not saying that about any of you. But yet, if you have, happen to mistakenly find yourself exceeding exceeding the speed limit then yeah it tells you where all the police are positioned down the road and then I love it but because it always tells you it tells you where the potholes are right yes In South Carolina, it's talking continually then, right? Isn't that right? Yes, exactly right. Reba and I love it as we always travel and we have it on because it it says hole in the road coming up and we always look for it to see if it's really there or if it's kind of like it's a big joke, you know, and we find it. But yet it does, it gives us all the details. But what we realize in this journey of the resurrection is that we don't have all the details. We don't have every one of them. So here is the text. It's John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that a stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, who we believe historically to be John. Some people think it was Lazarus, but historically we believe to be John and said to them... They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I've always wondered this, that why John has to list the winner of the race to the tomb. Have you ever wondered that, right? I've always wondered, why does he have to do that? Some people say, well, John outruns Peter because there was a division between Peter and John, but there's really no historical value to that. We really don't see that at all. And some people say, well, Peter was just... You know, he was burdened with shame because this is a few days removed from his that of his denial of Christ. And that could be true. But my thought is this. And maybe just because the way I feel sometimes, I think Peter was just older, you know, and John is this young bucket outruns him is what he does. Right. And so he gets there first. And verse five says, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there but did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, gasping for breath. It doesn't say that, but I think it probably meant that, right? Yes. Get out of the way. Let me get in the tomb. Oxygen, please. And went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth with which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Verse 8, I underline this part. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and saw and believed. He believes that Jesus is not there. Jesus doesn't appear to them, but yet they believe, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead inside. Faith is always based on some level of limited understanding. It really is. That's the nature of faith itself. It it draws us. Why? Because it draws us to the one that simply speaks truth into our lives. That God does not always reveal every step to us up front. Because it draws us to him who reveals truth and who is truth. And what we see in verse 9, as we just read it this morning, is this openness. this, This receptivity to God. That their heart is very open to God and to what is going on. Their mind doesn't understand, but their hearts are very open. And that what this does, this transcends simply that intellectual assent sometimes of you and I have to knowing all of the details. They trust God based on, well, in my thinking, a couple of things. They trust God based upon a need for some answers within their life. That they are troubled. It's where they start. They need some peace. So they're tr- in God because God has simply informed them or God has promised them that he would rise again. They, they simply trust God based upon what he had said to them previously in the text. They trust God based upon knowing his character and nature. And that is that God does not lie and God does what is very best for us. And I think this is where you and I struggle in faith a lot of times. Yes, that I want all the details up front. That's exactly what I want. Then I can believe. Give me all the information. Let me gather all this information and then I'm going to believe. But what that does, that simply goes in the very, it flies in the very face of what faith really is in our lives. Yes. I want to know how a God man comes to this earth how is he God and how is he man? We'll figure that one out. And when you do, kind of let me know how you really figure that out. And 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 so I want to know how that happens. And, and then I want to know that how that history is somewhat rearranged by the hand of God for Jesus to be simply crucified on a cross that is reserved for murderers and the enemies of the state of Rome. Yet what has Jesus done? Well, Paul uh, Pilate couldn't find anything guilty of him. So, but yet he's crucified because that is simply what God said would happen. He's buried in a borrowed tomb, and he rose on the third day. And I don't have all the details of all of those things, but I know that they are true because of what God has done in my heart. I know they are true. It's it's like this. I brought a flame with me, you know, and and uh, and and. I will keep it away from me not to become a human flame in front of all of you. But yet, I brought this flame. Here's the thing. I know this will harm me. I absolutely understand that. I understand that simply by, well... You know, I probably have experienced that at once in my life, but yet I don't have to have all the details, right? I don't have to understand the exact temperature of the flame. I don't have to understand the temperature that flame needs to become before it cooks my flesh. I don't have to know that, right? And I don't have to know the physics of all of this. And I don't even have to know absolutely what the difference between is a second-degree burn and a third-degree burn because I don't want to experience burn, period, you know? I don't want to experience it. I don't have to know all of those things. How do I have faith that I I simply understand enough of this flame to not put it to my skin? Because someone of great authority at one time, who I truly trust with everything in my life, told me that if you play with fire, you're going to get burnt. Guess who that was? My mom. Is that right? Yes. And I know that my mom would always do everything in her power for the very best for my life. I understand that. And I trust her. Can I tell you? At some point in your walk with God, and we're all on a journey, at some point in your walk with God, that you're going to have to trust Him apart from all the details. That's true. That you're going to have to, at some point, trust Him. With, without knowing everything that's going to happen in the future of your life, without having all of those things lined up within your life. But you're going to have to submit to him. And that simply starts with, I think, understanding his character and nature and realizing that God is for us and God is not against us. You say, but, you know, Mark, if I just had better doctrine, then I could understand this thing of the resurrection. And what I realize is this, that doctrine apart from faith always leaves us dry and crusty. It really does. Yes, it does. But this journey will always, for all of our lives, it comes to a point where you and I have to trust him without all the details. Here's what the scripture said about the disciples. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, yet they have faith. What is that faith based upon at that point? It's not, the faith, it's not faith based upon the appearance of Christ because they don't see Him when they run to the tomb. When this race is over and they end up at the tomb, they don't see Him. But here's what they do see. It's based on the grave clothes that, that John describes it, I think, in great detail that John recognizes the finger of God in the tomb that day. He sees that of the wrappings of Jesus and they're still lying there in the very shape of His body why? Because Jesus doesn't have to unwrap himself when he raises from the, rises from the dead, but he passes through those wrappings. Understand it. So there is that perfect form of Jesus lying there on the shelf. He looks over. That's a fingerprint of God. He looks over and he sees the face cloth. It's folded up nicely over on the side. God is the God of order. He doesn't leave things in a mess when he leaves the tomb. He tidies up after himself. So he understands that that is the fingerprint of God. He realizes that so many things in this life in this world, if we will just pay attention, we see the very fingerprints of God all around us and it reminds us that God is powerful. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. And we trust Him. Look at the creative order. Yes. Maybe some of you it was spring, it's spring break and maybe you were at the beach this week. Yeah. And some of you are bitter because you didn't get to go to the beach. And so you're here. You got to pray through your bitterness about the beach this morning. Right. And and so maybe but maybe you were at the beach this week or you went to the mountains. You saw the fingerprint of God. God reminds you that, listen, that he can do all things. He is not limited by any powers in this life. When you go to lunch today, you're going to have food. It's a common grace of God. We say this all the time. And that food tastes good because God made it taste good. He could have made all food taste the same but he makes it taste good and he makes it taste different for and enjoyment it's his fingerprint the air that you're breathing right now oh it's a fingerprint of god it is those common graces remind us that god is always present there comes a point when you simply have to trust him with your life when you don't have all the details that's part of the journey. Oh, for somebody that drives you nuts. I know it does. Yes, yes, all the detail-oriented individuals, it drives you crazy. Here's the second thought about the journey. The journey always leads to our hearts and beyond. So here's the second part of, of this chiastic, and it's this, that Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene in the garden. Let's let's read the story. It's verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept she stopped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. I What I really like I have to stop for a minute and take a pause. Mary is not afraid of angels. I don't know. If you look back at another gospel, that of Matthew chapter twenty four when the angels appear at to the tomb, what happens to the soldiers? the Bible says they appear as dead Mary she doesn't care she 's not shaken, she just wants to know where Jesus has been taken right you know you tell me where you have taken my lord and you tell me now, angel or no angel you know we 're going to do business in a moment if you don't take me. I love this about her, I really does well, what is she doing there anyway she 's come to anoint him to intern him again because this is not about him being risen to her this is about him being Being dead is exactly what this is about to Mary. She never came to the tomb expecting to find the tomb empty that day. She came expecting to be able to anoint his dead body again. Because the beauty of Mary is this, Mary Magdalene is this, that he is her Lord whether he is dead or alive. I love that. I love that about who she is as an individual. It's not that he's risen No, but he is missing. That's the issue with her. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Not unusual in a resurrected state. That happens at other times. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? It is the compassion of the father being revealed through his son. We keep reading, supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. What a powerful statement. That Jesus says to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. And I have to take another pause. Listen, I could preach for hours. We could talk about hours about the resurrection from John chapter 20. I promise you, I will not do that. But I have to take a pause because sometimes in some of the other gospels, it leads us to think that there is this actual, this curt moment between that of Jesus and Mary where Jesus says, whoa, hang on, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my father. But here he simply says to her, don't cling to me. It's not that he's Saying, don't touch me, because I truly believe that she is touching him while she's saying these things to him. And I believe what he's saying in my mind would be, Mary, you don't have to continually touch me. It is me. I am here. You ever had that conversation with someone and they're constantly rubbing your arm while they're talking to you? Have you ever done that? Yeah. Yes. And if it's a stranger, it's weird, isn't it? Like, Where is this hand going? I don't know. But if it goes anywhere past the elbow, I'm going to jack your jaw or something, you know, unless you're single, she's single. It's a good thing. It's a God thing kind of deal, you know. And and so, but yet, yet I I believe it's that moment. Mary is maybe she's touching him. Is this really you? Is this you, Lord? And he said, listen, don't cling to me. And, and he goes on to say, for I have not yet ascended to my father, to the father, but go to my brothers. It's the first time that we find in scripture where Jesus ever refers to the disciples as his brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. I, I think this is amazing because it says a lot again so much here that we have no time to cover it all. But it says so much about the relationship between the Father and the Son and that of the community between the Godhead and how that transitions to us in this community today and how we care for one another and love one another and we help each other in the journey of of our spiritual life. And that is that he never says to her, go and tell the disciples, I am risen. He says, go and tell them that I I am ascending to my Father. Because Jesus finds great joy in that. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. The good news of this is not that Jesus arose, but the good news is that we see the character and the nature of our loving God, our loving father being revealed through his son, Jesus. Listen, Jesus told his disciples in John 14 and 1, just after their Passover meal together, just after he washes their feet, just after he has exposed that of Judas and Peter and, and, and their denial and betrayal, just after all of those things that Jesus speaks to his disciples who are confused and anxious and fearful. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That I am the view of the heart of the Father to the world. To see me is to know Him and to know His heart is what He's saying. Hebrews 1 and 3 says He's the expressed image of the Father. And one thing I understand about the Father is this, that the Father is always focused on the hearts. Jesus says to Mary, who are you seeking or whom are you seeking? If you look back in John chapter 1, when Jesus first calls his disciples, he basically says the very same same thing to them. He says to them, what are you seeking? He talks to their heart. He speaks to their heart. When that of the the temple guards approach him in the garden and they arrest him before the crucifixion, what does he say to the temple guards? Whom are you seeking? Because he's speaking to their hearts is what he's doing. Now, after the resurrection, he is simply saying that to Mary, whom are you seeking? seeking. He is speaking to her very heart. And what I realize is this, that God is not so concerned about my politics this morning and whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat. That'll make some of you upset. Please send me an email. I'll be glad to respond to that or my worldview or my ideas on global warming. And I think those are important topics, but he's focused on my heart because from that, in fact, the Bible says my heart is the wellspring of life. From that flows all the other issues of life that is truly focused on my heart. And this is an encounter with Christ at this very moment with Mary. When he encounters our own hearts too. It's not about making you and I a nicer person. It's not about increasing our level of that of morality, so to speak, in our life. It's not that at all. But it's about the transformation of my heart. Because what I realize is this. My behavior changes in life when my heart is changed. So he's speaking to her heart, is what he's doing. And I love this, because for Mary, the sight of grave clothes, she's seen the same thing the disciples saw. That did not bring change to her. No, she saw angels. That's just an angel to Mary. She's looking for Jesus, you know, kind of deal. So that didn't change. When she sees Jesus and she thinks that he is her uh, the gardener that has taken Jesus away, that does not really affect her. None of those things pierce the darkness of her life. None of those things pierce the hurt and the pain and the tragedy of her own heart until Jesus simply speaks her very name and that pierces her heart because he has always been about our hearts. Always about our hearts. And Jesus tells Mary, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. Oh, he commissions her. Listen, if you've ever, ever if you've ever got into the debate about women in ministry, hi. Pull out Mary Magdalene because here what happens is this, that simply Jesus commissions her. She becomes a disciple to the disciples is what she's doing. She's saying, hey, go over there to those guys that are locked in a room because they're afraid of the other Jews. And I want you to fill in the missing blanks for their lives is what he's saying. And their reception to her is not good. Because we find them in a moment in verse 19, locked in a room out of fear. But what I realize is this, she fills in the blanks of the resurrection, but they have to come to faith themselves. You see, it's not just you having some knowledge about this day. It's not just about you having some understanding of where the resurrection is found in Scripture and the movements the movements of this narrative i know but it has to do with you taking these truths and allowing them to come into your heart and bring transformation within your life that really brings change within you and i i don't have to have all the details I just realize that it is Christ that brings change into my life. The third part of the journey is that the journey is the path to peace and joy in this life. So the third part of this chiastic, chiastic the third part of this, is that Jesus appears to the disciples. Let me let me read the text to you this morning. It's verse nineteen. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Because Jesus had already promised them this gladness when they would see him. Verse 21, and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And again, we could spend a long time in that text, especially the part where He breathes on them and He says, "Receive the Holy Spirit." Many theologians say that would be the conception of the Holy Spirit, and Acts chapter two is the birth of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of discussion. We will not deal with that today. But I think that what we have to understand this this thing about peace and joy is the search of life. It really is. I just want a little peace in life. You know, I hear people say all the time, "All the time, dude, I don't want a whole lot of money, but you know what? If a whole lot of money brings us some peace, then give me the money. You know, show me the money." I kind of. Deal right, yeah, yeah, and and so, so I just want a little peace in life. I just want to go find some place in life where everybody's not wanting a piece of me, where everybody's not wanting a part of me. I just want to get away, and I think that's the disciples they're locked in this room, they're afraid of that, of the attack of the other Jews, and all of a sudden they're locked in this room in this moment of fear. And Jesus morphs through the walls. He doesn't even use the door. He doesn't unlock. He doesn't knock. He doesn't ring the doorbell. He doesn't do anything. But he morphs through the walls of that, of that very room with lasting joy and peace for the disciples. And what I realize is this. That that peace, that joy, that gladness is a direct result of the completed work upon the cross. Because it's only when Jesus shows them his hands and his side, it's only when he reveals the wounds of the cross. If you read the text, it's only those kinds of things. If it were not enough that he entered the room without using the door or the locks or the windows or any of those kinds of things, but it's simply the wounds that he suffered upon the cross that brings them joy. Understand that, because Jesus paid that price for those things in our life. That gruesome work that took place upon the cross was simply the payment. It covered the debt that you and I can have joy that the world cannot take from us. Because it's not based upon this world, it's not based upon things around us, but it's based upon Christ. And when they see the wounds, they... They have joy. It's, it's what Jesus says in John 16 and 21. And when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Jesus is the only man that's able to talk about women giving birth and then live through it as if he understands, right? Yes, because I, I don't do that. She has sorrow because her hour has come when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you, he says. Jesus is the presence of the Father coming to earth to bring peace, peace of God through the Son. Because at this moment, everything in the creative order has changed from the moment of the The incarnation, things begin to change. To that of the crucifixion, things begin to change. To the burial, things begin to change. And then it culminates with the resurrection that everything has changed in all of time and beyond our time frame, that all is changed. That sin and death have been defeated. The promise to fix the brokenness of mankind that we heard in the book of Genesis has been done. It has been fulfilled. Joy and peace, which no one can take away from you, has arrived through Jesus what it says. That He is here. And some of you are in search for that this morning. In great search for that of joy and peace in your life. The fourth part of the journey, the journey of faith, is a process, not a moment. Jesus appears to the disciples. This time, Thomas is with them. This is the journey. This time, Thomas is, is with him. Here is the text, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, call the twin. We, Thomas gets a bad rap, okay? Now, now uh, my man Thomas, he gets a bad rap from a lot of people, and a lot of preachers trash Thomas. Can I tell you what? I think Thomas is a really great guy. I really is. You know why? Because Thomas is a lot like me, and he's a lot like you. He asks a lot of questions, and it's okay, Understand that. Read the text for what it is. Don't read into the text all the things that you have heard over the years about him. So let's see what it says. Now, Thomas 1 of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when James came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now I think that he, he's kind to he's being dramatic a little bit, okay? Is what he's being. It's not like he wants to put his whole fist into the side of Jesus. I think he's there's there's some drama going on here. Understand that. Now don't look at me like you've never had drama in your life, okay? If you're sucking air and you've been around other people, you got drama going on at some point, okay? Understand that. So I think that he's playing this little drama thing going on here, you know? And and but yet what I love it, it's a process for us. Faith is a process. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, And and I love this, place. Jesus lovingly guides us through this process. Put your fingers here and see my hands. This is why I think that he was doing a little drama before. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It never says that Thomas sticks his hand in the side of Jesus or puts his finger in his hand. But Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. That's what he says. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet they believed. Jesus never curses him when he blesses others. He doesn't judge him. He doesn't do that. This is the Sunday away from the crucifixion. He, this is progression of our faith right before our very eyes is what this is. That God reveals himself in this loving and compassionate way, but a determined way for our hearts through his son Christ. And the other disciples, they're at different places in their journey than where Thomas is. But yet Jesus doesn't judge them. Because this journey is level ground. Because we're all on a journey together. Every one of us in this room together. They've already believed. They've already seen. But Thomas is in the process of believing. And definitely seeing. When I begin to look at this. What I realize in reading these texts is this that the word that is used for believing here actually is the same word that's used for becoming. It's actually the very same word that's used for becoming. That there is this reel of our lives where Thomas says, Shh, you know, I'm not going to believe unless I see him, unless I'm able to touch the holes in his hands and stick my hand into his side again a little drama and, and I, I'm not going to believe until I, I see those things that's where he was that's the real of his life then the ideal of his life is that of my Lord and my God when he says that to Christ when he sees him for the very first time it's the journey between those moments understand that it's those moments where God is guiding us to truth it's those moments that you and I find ourselves in and God does not leave us he does not condemn us when we doubt him he, he doesn't he doesn't simply judge us in those moments where we struggle, in those in-between moments, but He guides us. He guides us because simply it's not about a moment, but it's about a process in our lives. It's about a process. It's not some ethereal ascent that we have. About Jesus. It's not that we think he's some concept, but he is a reality. And I love it because John interprets these historical events in the light of spiritual reality. Yes. So what does real faith look like as we tie all this together? Genuine faith in our life. It's not perfection. Man, isn't that great? You just feel a sigh over the room, like, oh, I am so glad. Because, man, today today, I am really imperfect. Can I tell you every day you're imperfect? Okay, let's deal with it for what it is, right? That every day we're all imperfect. But here is what I think genuine faith is. It's not perfection, but it's, but it's that I'm struggling with the areas of my life that I need to struggle with. That's progress in my life. Genuine faith is that of a deeper understanding of the nature and the character of God, that God is for me and not against me genuine faith is a deeper understanding of how god sees me that that i am the first fruits as james says of his creation or creatures that i'm a down payment of what is to come, that it's not that of a list of rules and that of boxes to check off that changes me, but it's the beauty of the gospel that brings transformation within my life, that God takes something that is broken, then He makes it beautiful. He takes something that is simply very ugly and dark, and He brings light into it, and He makes it extremely beautiful. He takes something that is greatly imperfect, and He covers that with the blood of His Son, Jesus. So when He sees me, He sees me through the perfection of His Son. It's the beauty of the gospel that changes us. So the last thought is this, of this chiastic as we work our way through. The journey is not to be walked alone. Man, I'm so glad. Because the way that this ends is very much like the way it begins. Because it begins with the disciples not seeing Jesus but believing. It ends with you and I not seeing Jesus in a physical form, but yet believing. Those are the powerful bookends of this story. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you sit here, because we're very good sometimes at trying to exclude ourselves from these narratives. Oh, I'm at this place in my journey, so I really don't need to talk about that. I have been at church most of my life, so I really don't need this today, Mark. And what we realize as studying the book of John in chapter 20 is this that there are three individuals that Paul is writing to. He's writing to those that are yet to believe. He, the, those, it's in the story. That's the beautiful part about the narrative. He's writing to those that are yet to believe. And then, and then what we realize, he's writing to those that have just begun to believe. It's in the narrative. And then he's also writing to those that, to, that continue to believe. And what I love about this, that this journey is not some solo trek that we find ourselves on, but God reveals his presence through his Son, and, and, and this is such a powerful thing. It's such a powerful thing that when, when the disciples first go to the tomb, what does Jesus do? He leaves his grave clothes lying there. Yes. He could have easily taken them. He could have easily said, once he had defeated death, hell, and the grave, he could have said to the angels, "Hey, you guys, clean up, tidy up a little bit, get all this stuff out of here. I don't want any kind of, I don't want any kind of a." Uh, uh, uh reminder or sign left here that I was here. But what does he do? Because he says, I don't want my disciples to walk this journey alone. So I'm going to leave them my fingerprints all over the tomb so they'll understand that this is exactly what I had promised. He left fingerprints for Peter who had denied him. He left fingerprints for John who can run faster than Peter. He did. He he left all of those things because we are not made to walk this alone. But he walks it with us. He walks it with us. He calls Mary by her name. She doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. Oh, he is the gardener. He is the gardener of our lives who sticks his hands in the very dirt of our life all the time. But when he says to her, Mary, he pierces her very heart. Can I tell you, there is no sin in your life too dark. There is nothing that you have ever done that God's forgiveness cannot obliterate and pierce your heart today. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He comes to his disciples while they're hiding behind locked doors. They're afraid because they don't understand, but he brings peace and joy that he says that no one can take from you. He reveals his wounds to Thomas. We call Thomas the doubting Thomas. I want to call him the inquisitive Thomas is what I want to call him. Yes, because he wants to know. He simply wants to see Christ. It's not necessarily about the wounds. It's not necessarily about the scars, but it's about Jesus. He just wants to see Jesus and Jesus shows up. Because believing is becoming. Because a journey is not a journey we walk by ourselves. But what about us? What about that last one? That's the one that really gets me that we have not seen, yet we believe. And he said here in 30 and 31, hey, I've written these things. I've given you these eyewitnesses so that you would believe. I want you to know. You see, the disciples get grave clothes. I love this. We get eyewitnesses. How can you doubt this? How can you dispel this? How can you say that this is a myth or an idea? This is some plot to create a religion on. Because what I believe is this, that all the disciples, most of them die a martyr's death. I doubt that any of them would die a martyr's death for some plot. Some fake event that they all put together to try to stage A resurrection to build some kind of following on. I mean, these are guys that won't even tell the truth when Jesus is about to be crucified and they lie that they never knew him. These are not the guys that would truly be crucified upside down if this was some crazy plot conceived by man. But this this journey is our journey. It is our journey. It is our hope. It is the surety of our faith. Because without this, without this chiastic, without this flow and rhythm, without this narrative, we are hopeless. And we have nothing. But with this truth, we have life. Because he found us dead in our sins. And because he lives, we live also. So would you bow your heads for a moment with me this morning? Father, Father, as we take a moment to truly contemplate the resurrection, as we take a moment to maybe answer some questions in our own hearts, as we are confronted with truth today, Lord, because you are truth, that God, there has to be some spiritual movement in our lives. That, Father, we are either leaning into you today because of the resurrection or we're leaning away from you today. But there has to be some spiritual movement in all of our lives this morning. And for those in the room that have yet to believe, Father, draw them by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Draw them to you with your love for those that are just beginning to believe, God, and they are struggling through the process sometimes, that you would remind them that this was never meant for them to walk alone. For you walk with us. And for those that continue to believe, Father, that there are times in our lives when we don't have all the details. But God, we trust you because that lack of detail in our life always pushes us to the one of truth, and that is you. And so, God, we lean into you this morning in our lives. We lean into you, our resurrected Lord. Because today, truly, death has been defeated, sin has been overcome. The grave has been robbed of its power in this life. And today you live. You live, Lord. So wherever we are on this journey, that you would speak to us. That you would speak to us, Lord. In this moment of meditation, you would speak to us. Father, for those here that have never accepted you as the Lord of their lives, may they accept your forgiveness that has already been extended. Recognize a need for you in their lives. That's the beginning of the journey. Asking you to come into their lives, confessing you as Lord at this moment and beginning this journey with you today, God. Speak to their hearts in this very moment. And Father, we give you thanks in your